Let me share a story with you. There was a man who lived in England who was planning to go on a, on a trip to Europe for a holiday. So he brought his Rolls Royce with him. And so he was traveling all over Europe, driving around his Rolls Royce, and then all of a sudden something went wrong with his car. And so he called the people from the Rolls Royce company in England and asked them, listen, there's something wrong with my car. What do you suggest I should do? So the company of the Rolls Royce flew in one of their mechanics over to Europe to fix the problem. Having fixed the problem, the man flew back into England. The mechanic flew back to England, fixing the car and taking care of the car and leading the man to his holiday. Now, as you can imagine, this man was wondering how much all this was going to cost him. So when he finally was done with his holiday, he got back to England. The first thing he did was write a letter to the company of the Rolls Royce asking them how much I owe you. Two days later, the man received a letter from the company, and in this letter, this is what it read. Dear sir, there is no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with a Rolls Royce. Now, imagine that being you, and you call on God and say, Lord, how much do I owe you? This would be God's response. Dear son, or dear daughter, there's no record anywhere in my heavenly files that anything ever went wrong with you. That is the perfect example or illustration of justification. And tonight I want to talk to you about this very important subject. It is one of the most important words that is found in your Bible, especially in the New Testament. When we talk about justification, it is a legal term. It is the opposite of condemnation and is one of two possible verdicts which can be given in a legal case or a legal trial. In the Old Testament, when there, whenever there was a controversy between two people, they were brought before a court and the judge would hear their, their grievances. And then the judge would decide between them. And he would either justify the innocent or declare, or declare the, 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 the guilty to condemnation. But justification is not just a legal word that we get out of a courtroom. It is also a biblical term. It is a biblical word. And one of the things about justification in a biblical sense, well, actually, I should say that the Greek word that is translated into the word justify means to announce as a favorable verdict or to declare as righteous. So justification in a biblical sense is a divine act by an infinitely holy God who declares a believing sinner to be righteous and acceptable before God. All because Christ Jesus carried the sinner's sin to the cross. When we talk about justification, it is a change in a man's relationship or standing before God. It is not about their conduct and it's not about their character, but has everything to do with relationship. Actually, when we talk about conduct and character, that takes place with sanctification, which is related to justification. But that's a whole different subject for another day. But justification has more to do with God's declaration about the sinner and not any change within the sinner. Okay, that's really important to understand. So in other words, justification does not make anyone holy. It just simply declares them as not guilty before God and therefore treated as though he was holy and righteous. Are you hearing me? Something else to know about the meaning of justification is that it consists of two elements. The first element is the forgiveness of sin. The second element is the removal of guilt and punishment. And so justification is a change from guilt and condemnation to acquittal and acceptance. And we're going to see throughout this night, uh, throughout this evening, how God is a wonderful, perfect example of justice. 
Let's give you an example here. Go to Micah chapter 7. Let's look at verses 18 and 19. Where Micah describes God as the perfect righteous judge. He goes on to say, Where is another God like you, who pardons the guilt of the remnant, that is the Jewish people, overlooking or passing over the sins of his special people? You will not stay angry with your people forever, because you delight in showing unfailing love. And the King James Version says, you delight in mercy. Then in verse 19, once again, he says, you will have compassion on us, and you will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. Now, what I want you to see here is that Micah was describing a God of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. But how many of you believe that the same God of the Old Testament is also the same God in the New Testament? Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Amen. But according to Micah, he shows, that God's, he shows God's willingness to, to forgive and to pardon our sins. So God, being the righteous God that he is, has the power and the authority to either save or to condemn but it is his prerogative alone. It is his whole willingness, his own desire to choose to save us as sinners. The picture here that is being painted is one of a courtroom where the sinner is the one whom the judge declares as being right. He is the one that's being justified. So to justify means to declare as righteous or to be declared to be in the right. Or to be vindicated. And as I said to you before, the justification is the opposite of condemnation. And condemnation simply means to declare as being guilty or being in the wrong. But as we read in the scriptures in the, in the book of Micah, God is always more ready to forgive and to pardon. He's always more ready to save. And that's what I love about God. He's more ready to save than rather than to condemn. The scripture says, and if you look at Micah, even verse 19, he says that God will trample our sins under his feet and throw our sins into the depth of the sea. So it, 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 nothing pleases God more than finding the opportunity to show forth his mercy. Because without it, we're faced with eternal death or eternal condemnation. Go to Romans chapter 4. <clears throat> but God is a just and loving God. And we're going to see that tonight. In Romans chapter 4, Paul quotes out of the book of Psalms something that King David had wrote and said. In verse 7 it says, Blessed and happy to be envied are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered up and completely buried. In verse 8, Blessed and happy and to be envied is the person of whose sin the Lord will not take account nor reckon it against him. Other translation says whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. In other words, there are no records anywhere in God's files that anything ever went wrong in our lives as far as God is concerned. Turn your neighbor and tell them, I am justified. So we now know what justification means. So let's talk about the concept of justification. When we measure ourselves with others, in most cases, we can walk away feeling pretty good about ourselves, right? However, when we measure ourselves with God, we walk away feeling pretty hopeless and dejected, right? But that's because God is such a holy and righteous God. And, every, and God demands everything to be right and holy. He demands it. Are, are you hearing me? But when a holy God, righteous God, when he holds us to his measuring stick, there is no one on earth that is able to stand before him. Because that's how righteous God is. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? So you and I won't have a problem falling short of someone's high standards. Our real problem begins when we find ourselves falling short of God's standard or God's glory. And therefore, the problem has to be addressed. And that problem is sin. And sin is like a disease that demands a cure. 
And like any other diseases, it's not going to go away by itself. It's got to be dealt with. When we talk about verdict, now a verdict is a decision that is made on a disputed issue in a civil or criminal case. But since God's verdict is the only one that matters, this raises a question. How can an unholy person, guilty sinners, be made right before a perfectly just and perfectly holy God? You ever ask yourself that question? Even Job asked that same question. Go to Job chapter 9. Look at verse 2. Job chapter 9 and verse 2 says this. Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? In other words, how can a person, unholy and unrighteous as he is, can be declared innocent and acceptable to God? How can that possibly be? If you look in Psalm 130 and verse 3, we see a similar question being asked. The psalmist writes, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities or have kept records of sin, O Lord, who could stand or who can survive? So we can understand these lines of question because the Bible tells us that there's no one righteous, not even one. But the Bible tells us that all of mankind has, been, has already been tried in the highest court of heaven before God, who is the righteous judge. And God's verdict for all of mankind is guilty. How many believe that? According to the book of Nahum, chapter 1 and verse 3, it says that God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In Romans chapter 5, in the first part of verse 18, Paul writes... That through one man's offense, which is Adam, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. So we see that Adam's one sin brought about death and condemnation to all of mankind. Now the world stands before God as being guilty. And here's the thing. There's nothing that you and I could say or do to change that verdict because the sentence has already been pronounced. There's no defense, there's no debate, and there's no argument. It's already been established. But these are serious charges for all, against all of mankind because understand this, the punishment for sin is eternal death, which is a separation from God forever in hell and I don't know about you and whether you know this or not but in hell there are no windows or exit doors to escape from there are no there's no peace there's no joy there is no hope there are no second chances more importantly there is no God Those who are sent to hell are sent for all eternity. There's no return ticket. So think about this. We're talking about an eternal life sentence with no chance of parole. This is the sentence that God has set before to the world because of sin. When you commit a, a crime against an eternal God, there are eternal consequences. And hell is God's eternal justice against all sinners. But here's the good news. Even though God is too holy and too, too just to ignore sin, God is too loving and too merciful to allow us to remain in that state. Turn to your name and tell him, I'm justified. When you read your Bible, it, it sort of paints a picture where God is a righteous judge and Jesus is the advocate who represents us, who pleads our case. You can say he is our defense attorney. That leaves Satan as the prosecutor because he's the accuser of the brethren. But we can take confidence in this, that we can rely on God because, he, because we know that he's going to act in perfect justice without any preference and without any prejudice because he is a perfect judge. 
Understand that God's court is unlike any human court. And that's because God has done what no other human judge can do. When a person is found guilty of a crime before a human judge, that judge cannot ignore or overturn the verdict. Whenever somebody commits a crime and is convicted of committing a crime, no matter what it is, he's got to pay the penalty and the verdict cannot be changed. However, God, the righteous judge, came up with a plan. A plan of salvation who changed our verdict. Come on now. He changed our verdict by which we do not have to pay the penalty for our, ki- our, for our guilt. But we were justified. We were pardoned. We were acquitted. Hallelujah. And he declared us as righteous. That means that God now sees us the same way he sees Jesus. Go to Romans 5 and verse 18. And I read this to you earlier, but let's go there. And let's go over this again. Paul says that through one man's offense, judgment has come to all men, resulting in condemnation. That is, all of mankind was found guilty and will face the penalty for their crime because of what Adam did. A crime that the righteous judge cannot ignore. Sin has to be addressed in a way that is acceptable to the one that was, that was offended. And how many of you know that sin is an offense to, a, to God's holy character? And, and here's the problem with sin. Sin has left a huge gap between us and God. That means it requires a bridge for us to be able to bring all of humanity back to God. That's what sin has done. But then Paul doesn't end here in this verse here because he says, One man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. But let's finish the rest of the verse. He says, Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. And once again, we see justification as an act of God, whereby he declares a forgiven sinner as being righteous and pardoned. According to one theologian, the root idea in justification is a declaration of God that the man who believes in Christ, sinful though he may be, is righteous or viewed as being righteous or right standing. Go to Romans chapter 5 and look at verse 10. Someone once wrote that God's bridge building is reconciliation. Look at what verse 10 says. For when we were enemies... We were reconciled of God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we see here that Jesus' death on the cross made it possible for people and God to be reconciled and be justified. But here's what I want you to see. In the beginning of that verse, he says, for when we were enemies, what makes us enemies to God? Or I should say, what made us enemies to God? Well, the fact that we were born in sin. That made us an enemy of God. The fact that we walked in darkness makes us an enemy of God. The fact that we walked in rebellion and disobedience made us enemies of God. The fact that we lived a life of selfishness and self-righteousness and self-centeredness, full of pride, That caused us to be enemies of God. But while we were still his enemies, while our poster picture was posted in God's heaven's walls as public enemy number one, number two, number three, number four. The Bible says that that God reconciled us through his son. Imagine Gary's picture on the wall in heaven as public enemy number one. And God looks at that picture and says, I'm going to send my son to die for him. Because I want him to be reconciled to me. And that's what God did for all of us. So it didn't matter how much of an enemy we were. God's love and mercy caused him to want to reconcile us 
by sending his son to the cross. God is more willing to save than he does to condemn. So reconciliation is totally the work of God through the sacrificial death of his son. Go to Acts chapter 13. Look at verse 38 and 39. Verse 38 says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, which is Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is justified, watch this, from all things, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. What Paul is saying here, or what the Bible is saying here is that We have been declared innocent from all things that made us guilty. So think about all the things that you may have done in your life that made you guilty and an enemy before God. And the Bible says we've been justified from all of those things. So when God looks at the believer, he looks at us as though we had no sin and no guilt. To be justified means to stand before God just as if we've never sinned. If you can even imagine that, if you can even comprehend that. And, and here's the thing, and, and I need you to get a hold of this truth. Because justification before God means more than just forgiveness. For instance, if one of your children threw a ball through your window, smashing your window, you can forgive your child, but your child is still guilty. No forgiveness, no amount of forgiveness can, can ever change the fact that your child broke the window. Are you hearing me? So in other words, you can forgive your child. You cannot justify their actions. When a sinner comes to God, God does both. He forgives and he justifies And those are the two elements that make up justification. The forgiveness of sin and the removal of guilt and punishment. That is such a powerful thing. So when we talk about justification, it means that you are not merely a forgiven criminal or a forgiven sinner. But you've been made righteous. Forgiveness removes the punishment for sin. Justification removes the guilt of sin. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, I'm glad I'm justified. Now look at Romans chapter 3. And let's go to verse 23. And I quoted to, uh, this to you earlier. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now look at verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What is the source of justification? Paul writes here that justification is a free gift of grace. The words freely justified indicates that justification is given without anything done on our part to earn it or to deserve it. So it's pretty clear here that if man is to be justified at all from all things, it has to be done by God's grace. And the source of justification is his unmerited and undeserved favor, which is his grace. There was a story about a man who was standing before a judge. And the judge gave him a choice to either pay the $100 fine or spend 90 days in jail. Now, the man didn't have $100. But what he did have was a wife who was invalid. And 500 children who depended on him and only him. And so as the man began to tell this gut-wrenching or or heart-wrenching story to to the judge, the courtroom spectators was moved with pity and decided to take a collection for this man to help pay for his fine. Even the judge was moved and he chipped in. Altogether, they came up with $99.95. And even though they were short just only five cents, the judge declared that he had to pay the hundred dollars, that the hundred dollars must be paid. So he had no choice but
but to order the bailiff to take him to jail. So as a man was being escorted out of the courtroom, feeling dejected, as he put his hand in his pocket, lo and behold, he finds a nickel. And he was excited. He ran back into the courtroom, ran before the judge, placed a nickel on the bench of the judge, and he says, I'm free, I'm free. Now, the question is, in this man's mind, what saved him? The $99.95 or the $5? I mean the five cents. Let me say this. If we did anything to save ourselves, if we did anything to earn our salvation, we would be forever boasting about it in heaven. But the fact is, we could do nothing. So Jesus paid it all. Look at Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. And what are the wonderful things about Jesus? And when he paid it all, he was not short. He made the full payment. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, it says this. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us or purchase our freedom from every lawless deed. And purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. The Bible says in Romans 8.1 that there now is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, there are no more penalties or no sentence to be served for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we understand now what the source of, uh, of justification is. And that is God's grace. But what is the condition for justification? Go to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. Now we understand that there's nothing that we can do to earn justification before God. Look in Galatians 2 and verse 16. It says this. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but what? By faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So according to Galatians 2.16, the condition for justification is faith in Christ Jesus. Listen to what John's gospel says in chapter 3 and verse 18 from the Amplified Version. Jesus says, he who believes in him who clings to, trusts in, or relies on him is not judged. He who trusts in him will never come for judgment. For him there is no rejection, no condemnation, and he incurs no damnation. But he continues, but he who does not believe, he who does not cleave to, he who does not rely on or trust in him is judged already. He has already been convicted and has already received his sentence, as I mentioned to you earlier, because he has not believed in and trusted in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He is condemned for refusing to let his trust to rest in Christ's name. So the verdict is guilty and the sentence is life in hell. So it is clear that the sole condition for justification is faith in Christ. And as we read earlier from Romans 5 and verse 18, that through one man, which is Adam's offense, judgment came to all men and resulting in condemnation. But through Christ Jesus, the righteous demands of God were met. So that sinners can be justified before a holy God. And that's because Christ's sacrifice dealt with the sin problem. And because he did that, now God is able to reverse the verdict of guilt, of condemnation, toward any sinner who puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way that it can happen. That's the only way that we can be justified. Because we have nothing to offer God. 
You know, it's like if, if, if I was borrowing your car, and um, who's, got, who's got a nice car? Who's got a new car? Who's got a newest car that I can borrow? Let's say you had a Mercedes, and you let me borrow your, your Mercedes, brand new. And I'm driving around Providence, and I get into an accident, and I run your car into a pole totaling your car. Now, you would forgive me, but you won't be satisfied if I come to you with the key and say, hey, really, I'm, I'm sorry for wrecking your car. Because you would tell me, well, I forgive you, but saying you're sorry is not going to fix my car. Your apologies is not going to fix the damage. Damage was done and someone had to pay for it and that would be me. So you would come to me and says, let's talk about your insurance coverage. Demands were made because I have to pay for the damage. But Christ Jesus comes in, he sees the damage called sin, and he says, you don't have to pay, I'll take care of it. I'll pay for it. Don't worry about your insurance company. Don't worry about your surcharges going up, I'll take care of it. Jesus paid it all. That's what justification is all about. Now, Go to Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. So we talked about the source of justification, which is God's grace. We talked about the condition for justification, and that is faith in Christ Jesus. But let's talk about the one thing that seals our justification. Romans 5, verses 8 and 9. But God shows and clearly proves his own love for us by the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One, died for us. Verse 9, therefore, since we are now justified, acquitted and made righteous and brought into right relationship with God by Christ's blood, how much more certain is it that we shall be saved by him from the indignation and wrath of God? So based on what we've read here, the one thing that seals our justification is the blood of Jesus. And you know, when we look at justification by his blood, it means far more than just being declared not guilty, but an incredible transfer, an incredible exchange takes place. And Paul describes it over in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and in verse 21, where he says this, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He became our sin so that we can become his righteousness. That is the great exchange. That is the great transfer. You know, we, we, we read about the sacrifices that are made throughout the Old Testament. And, and, and it's not just some meaningless, you know, uh, butchering of animals. There's great significance to these sacrifices. Because according to Romans, uh, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, it says, For without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sin. Or of sin. In other words, there's no canceling out or dismissing of sin without the shedding of blood. There has been a shedding of blood. Oh, I should say this. Without the shedding of blood, we would be facing a death penalty. And that would be bad news for all of us. But because through, uh, because through Christ and the blood that he has shed, we were able to, he was able to seal the justification for us. And even though God didn't lessen the penalty for sin, he allowed someone else to substitute for us, to pay for the damage or to pay for the penalty of guilty sinners. Every one of us was once pronounced as guilty. But because of Christ's death and because of his blood, we were now found as innocent. That is the final verdict in our lives we are innocent. We've been pardoned. We've been excused. We've been exonerated. We've been dismissed of all charges. And we stand before God innocent. And I'm getting ahead of myself. So let me stop right there. But the only sacrifice that God would accept that would completely atone for sin is the shedding of blood. The great sacrifice that had taken place in the New Testament, which was Jesus Christ, was something more than the death of a martyr, but the justification of all of mankind by his blood. 
And by the benefit and quality of Christ's blood, the forgiven sinner is justified. <laughs> and stand before God as though we've never sinned. Can you even comprehend that in your mind? You know, oftentimes, and you know, we're human, so we do this. But sometimes we can be our, worst own, our own worst critic. Sometimes we beat ourselves up. We look at our mirror and we don't look at it. And we, and we say to ourselves, you're not good enough. You know, you, 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 you made a mistake again. You, you, you've done, you made a boneheaded move once again. You, you know, we, we, we tend to critic, uh, criticize ourselves. It's human. Well, you know, it's human nature. But when God looks at us, he doesn't look at us in a critical eye. He doesn't look at us with a critical attitude. He sees us the same way he sees his son, Jesus. And man, if I can stand behind God's eyes and see us the way he sees us. If I can get a glimpse of how he sees us. Man, I think that would change our lives. But all we have is his word to take. We have his word to stand for. And if he says that we stand before him innocent and not guilty, then we need to look at ourselves in the mirror and say the same thing to ourselves. We need, the same, we need to speak the same thing and say, Mike, you're innocent. The world may not think so, but God says you are. And the Bible says that this is what real love is. Go to 1 John chapter 4 and look at verse 10. It says, This is real love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. And because He took away our sins, there are no charges that can be brought against us. There's no accusations that can be made towards us because God declared us as innocent and justified. Turn to your neighbor and says, are you justified? So our sin debt was not just brushed over, ignored. Jesus paid it all as God's gift to us because of his wonderful grace. According to Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, the same people that the Bible says have fallen short of the glory of God are perfect candidates to be justified. And if you know of someone who's not yet received Christ, let them know that God is more willing to save than to condemn. And he's willing to justify and call you or declare you as righteous and reconcile you back to himself and say you are not guilty but you are innocent <clears throat> so we talked about what justification means we talked about the concept of justification with the time that we have remaining let's talk about the benefit of justification Let's go to Romans chapter 5 and let's go to verse 1. Romans 5 verse 1 says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the wonderful benefits of justification is the incredible peace that we have with God. Earlier I read to you a verse of scripture where we talked about God's wrath and indignation. God's anger is always towards those things that are morally wrong. But God had saved us from that. God is no longer angry with us. One of the things about God is that, and notice that peace comes after justification, not before. And a holy and righteous God cannot be at peace with a sinner. He cannot be at peace when there's guilt of sin hanging over their heads. He had to be justified first before we can have that peace. You know, when a spouse gets, when a husband gets in an argument with his wife and his wife is angry with the spouse, with her husband, there's this awkwardness in the house. Some of you know what I'm talking about. 
You know, when you're having an argument, you know, you're, you're not talking to each other. There's this awkward silence. There's this cold shoulder that you give each other. And, you know, there's this tension. Would you say that there's peace? I would not say it's, there's peace there. But, when what, but then when you finally come together and make your peace and, and make up and kiss and make up and, and everything is all lovey-dovey, then all the peace, the tension is gone, the awkwardness is gone, and no, there's no silent treatment and you're all talking and everything's back to normal, there's peace. But it's just something about having peace with God, knowing that he's not angry with us, knowing that this, his wrath is not going to fall upon us, only because he's justified us. Knowing that when he looks at us, he doesn't look at us with anger just because we made a mistake. He looks at it with, with love, with, with tenderness, with mercy, with grace. There's, there's something to be said about having peace with God. Knowing that when we leave here, we know where we're going to end up. And there's that peace in knowing that I'm, I'm good with God and he's good with me. You know, there's nothing between us anymore. Because whatever enmity, whatever hostility, whatever there was between us, it's been removed. So, having peace, this incredible peace with God, knowing that God approves of you. We not only have a peace with God, but we also can experience the peace of God. For instance... The scripture tells us that in, in Romans 8.31 that if God is for us, who can be against us? But that alone gives you enough peace knowing that nothing can come against us because God is with us. In Romans 8 and verse uh, 35, Paul begins to list some of the things that can come before us or that can come against us. He, he mentions tribulation. He mentions distress. He mentions persecution. He mentions famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. He asked, the question is asked, if God is for us, who can be against us? And how many of you know that every day of our lives, something always comes against us? We're always facing some adversity. We're always facing some circumstances that tries to turn our eyes away from God, that tries to challenge our faith, that tries to get us discouraged and, and feeling hope, hopeless. But the scripture says that if God is for us, who can be against us? As a matter of fact, in Romans 8, 37, he promises this. He says that when things come against us, he says he promises overwhelming victory to those who love him. He said that we are more than conquerors in all of these things. Despite all the things that come against us, he says overwhelming victory is yours because Christ loves us. That's living with the peace of God. And knowing that we have peace with God, knowing that our relationship has not been interrupted because of what he's done for us and because we're serving him with all our hearts and living and walking by faith as best as we can. I mean, there's peace there. Another benefit that justification provides is that unlimited access. Go with me to Romans chapter 5 and verse 2. Romans 5 verse 2 says, Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Let me read that to you from the Amplified Version. It says, Through him also we have our access, our entrance, our introduction by faith into this grace, this state of God's favor in which we firmly and safely stand and let us rejoice and exult in our hope of experiencing and enjoying the glory of God. The Bible says that we have access to this grace. Grace in which we stand in. In other words, that's present tense. Every time we wake up, we find ourselves in a state of God's grace. We find ourselves in a state of God's unmerited and undeserved favor. Every time we face adversity, we have access to this grace. As a matter of fact, the Bible encourages us in Hebrews 4.16 to come boldly into the throne of grace. To obtain mercy where we find grace to help in time of need. 
Whenever we find ourselves in tough situations, like Paul, who found himself dealing with a thorn in his flesh, he cried out to God, and God simply says, I got you, because my grace is all you need. We have access to this wonderful grace, and we stand in a state of grace every moment of our lives, especially when we go through tough times. When we go through tough times, we rely on God's grace to get us through. When we were about to do something that we've never, never done before, challenges that we're facing that, we're that, that may be intimidating and scary, we have God's grace to help us to overcome. We have unlimited grace, unlimited access to this wonderful privilege that God has provided us, this undeserved privilege. One thing to know about having this unlimited access, this grace by which we stand, it is a permanent state of grace for as long as we live. That grace is made available to us and always accessible to us because it is God's wonderful gift. Another benefit that comes through justification. Go to Colossians chapter 1 in verse 22. Verse 22 says this, Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. The whole purpose of reconciliation is to bring his people into the very presence of God and stand before God as holy, righteous, blameless, and without fault. How many of you can honestly say that you were at fault at some time or another? Every hand should be up. And it may not be the last that we'll find ourselves at fault. But when we stand before God... He says, because he reconciled us, he sees us as being blameless and what? Without a single fault. Man. If you're dealing with a low self-esteem, this should boost up your esteem right now. That should encourage you. Look at what Jude, uh, Jude verse 24 says. Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. Man. All believers can be called holy and blameless because he's acquitted us of all charges. The charges have been dropped. It's been removed. It's been dismissed. So the only thing that stands now is the fact that we're innocent. And not guilty. Therefore we are blameless. And it was all done through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sealed by his blood. All because God loves us. And loves us too much to keep us in our sinful state. All because God desires more to save than to condemn. So the scripture tells us who can bring a charge against us. And the answer is, it is God who justifies. So if anybody tries to bring accusation against you, just remind them, hey, I'm justified because God justified me. Let's talk about eternal hope, another gift, another benefit that comes through justification. In Romans 5, 5, Let's just look at that first part of that verse. It says, now hope does not disappoint. In the King James Version, it says, hope maketh not ashamed. In Ephesians uh, 2 and verse 12, Paul reminds us of a time when you and I were without Christ. How many of you remember that day? When we were without Christ? Some of us don't even want to remember that far. But when we were without Christ, the scripture says we were also without hope. In 1 Timothy 1 and verse 1, the Bible says that Christ is our hope. So when we talk about hope, 
Hope means that even when it looks like it's all over, it's not all over yet. I like the example of, the, uh, of Abraham. When God told Abraham that you're going to have a child between him and his wife Sarah. And knowing that Abraham was 100 years old at the time and Sarah was 90 and her womb was dead, it was not capable of producing a child. There were numerous, how can I say, there were numerous natural and biological reasons that would cause Abraham not to believe God's promise about having a child. But in Romans chapter 4 and verse 18, the Bible says that Abraham who against hope, believed in hope, that he would be the father of many nations. In other words, in spite of the, the, the hopeless circumstances of his life, when he looked in his body and considered his wife's body and her uh, inability to produce a child, he looked beyond the hopelessness and put his hope in God's promise. So when he says, who against hope believed in hope, he turned aside the hopeless circumstances and turned his hope and his eyes and his focus on God's promise. That's where his hope lied. So hope is when things seem like it's all over, but it's not all over yet. Because your hope, our hope, is in his promise. So it doesn't matter what the circumstances tell you. It doesn't matter what the circumstances say. It doesn't matter what the circumstances look like. We trust and hope in his promise. And it's not over because the Bible tells us that God is able to work all things together for our good. To those who love him and were called according to his purpose. <clears throat> so... We have eternal hope, which is a product also of justification. Then, last, the restoration to fellowship. Go to Galatians chapter 4. As he get ready to close. Galatians chapter 4, beginning verse 4 says, But when the fullness of the time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem or purchase those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into, the hearts, uh, into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Then verse 7, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. We read here that God sent his son to buy freedom from, for us because we were once slaves to sin. And because he did that, he not only freed us, but he also adopted us and called us his children. We now are part of his family. This is what God's whole purpose was, is to bring us back to himself and call us a family. So justification by the blood of Jesus brings us permanently into a right relationship with God. Permanently in right standing with him. So we don't need to get saved all over again. And, and we certainly don't. And, and the penalty for sin has already been paid for. So we have this relationship that is solid. That, that cost Jesus his life. But that's what it was meant to do. The only thing that can disrupt our fellowship is when we commit a sin now after the fact. How many of you know what I'm talking about? When we commit a sin, we disrupt that fellowship that God had paid a high price for. But in order for the fellowship to be restored, that sin in our lives has to be addressed. And God come up with a way to do that. And that way is simply by confession and repenting of our sin.
So you understand the importance of confessing your sin before God whenever we fall short, whenever we miss the mark. And even more important is repenting from that sin. Because that is what causes us to be restored back into right relationship with him. Sin is a temporary interruption of our fellowship. But if we, if we continue in that sinful life and in sinful activity, all we're doing is separating ourselves further and further away from God. But when we confess our sins, the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now we stand in right standing with him. Our, our relationship has been restored. And when he looks at us, he looks at us as though we've never sinned. In, look, in the book of Micah, which we read early, he says, I will trample your sins under my feet and I will throw it into the depths of the sea. That's what he does whenever you confess your sin. Then there's a repentance where you're telling God, Lord, I'm sorry and I'm not doing this anymore. I'm turning away from that and I'm going the other direction. So it's important that we confess our sin and repent of our sins so that our relationship with God can be restored once again. We don't want a constant interruption of our relationship with him because it costs him too much. And when we do that, the record of our sins have been torn up and been destroyed. God is no longer against us, but he is for us. And there's nothing and no one who's able to separate us from his love. Those of you who are here tonight, now I, I know most of you here, but those of you who may have not given their lives to the Lord, who never received Christ into their lives, I want to pray for you. And those who are watching by live stream also, if you're watching and you've never given your life to the Lord, I want you to say this prayer with me. So I want all eyes closed and no one looking around. And I want you to say this prayer with me. Those of you who are watching, I want you to do the same thing. Close your eyes and begin to pray. And those who are here also who have received Christ as Lord, I want you to join me in this prayer. Say this with me. Lord God, I confess to you that I am a sinner. Please forgive me for the wrong things I've done. For the wrong thoughts I've had. For the wrong things I've said. Thank you for sending me Jesus. To receive the punishment. For my sin. I turn now. From my sin. And my sinful life. And I invite you. To come into my life. And into my heart. And be my Lord. Thank you for loving me. As I am. And giving me a new life. Thank you for justifying me. And calling me not guilty. And dismissing everything I've ever done. Through the forgiveness of my sin. And I thank you for it right now. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. And amen. If you said that prayer. Those of you who are watching, I want you to call that numbers on your screen. Someone will be in the office and willing to talk with you, to talk to you and help you to explain to you the decision that you made and also send you some materials to help you understand the decision that you made tonight. Also, those of you who are here, if you said that prayer for the first time, please come see me at the end of service because I also like to talk with you and I also have some materials that I would like to give to you as well. Amen. So before we dismiss you, let's, uh, let's worship the Lord with his tithes and our offerings. Uh, as you know, there are many ways that you can send in your tithes and offerings. And of course, it's all up on the screen. But let's pray and let's give God the thanks and honor that he deserves. Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming into your house and bringing in the, the, the tithes and the offerings that so belong to you. We thank you for this opportunity, Lord God, to be a blessing to you. And we thank you that you will also bless us in the same manner because of our giving. Lord, you promised that you will cause men to give unto our bosom. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall you cause men to give unto our bosom. You also promised, Lord, that you open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing upon us that we'll not have room enough to receive it because we are givers and tithers. 
And so, Father, we thank you, we honor you, we praise you and worship you with our tithes and your offerings. And for this, we thank you and praise you. In